0: 1 Peter chapter 5. We are ending our time in this uh, letter that we've spent all summer in. Uh, I have been really encouraged going through this letter with you. It's, it's been challenging. It's been convicting to me. It's been highly uh, profitable for my own soul just to think about uh, our brothers and sisters 2,000 years ago standing firm in the faith when Uh, They were in deep persecution, spread out all over Asia Minor. And throughout this letter, Peter has reminded the exiles and he's reminded us in our own exile that we have a living hope in Jesus. That He is our happy confidence. He is the one in whom we have all trust. We have a, a happy certainty that all of his promises to us will be fulfilled. And we've been called to be a a spiritual house, right? He says in 1 Peter 2, you are living stones. I'm a living stone. And together we are made up to be a spiritual house, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've seen the importance of authority and submission in various areas of our life. And we've been given insight into how to stand firm in the midst of suffering for the name of Jesus. We spent the last few weeks on that. Today, though, Peter will end his letter by showing us the roles that we should be walking in during our time as exiles, so the title of the message this morning then is "Playing our role as exiles." Now, notice um, I'm just going to say on the front end, uh, there's, there's three big ideas. We're going to see the, the, the elder's role or the pastor's role that he talks about in the first four verses. Then he talks about the church's role, the, the role of members in the next uh, verses, five through nine. And then he'll end with the Lord's role. What is God going to be doing in the midst of our? faithful walking in him. Uh, but the bulk of my time this morning is going to be focused on that second point, the church's role. Uh, not that you don't need to know what pastors are supposed to do, and I'm going to hopefully tell you that faithfully, uh, but the application for you is a little bit less as uh, uh, just a, a teenager who's not a pastor, right? So um, we'll kind of fly through that first point and then spend the bulk of our time on the second. So let's read our text together. We're going to read all 14 verses, and we'll pray. So join me, First Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. You will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful, Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Oh, God in heaven, we are grateful to gather together once again to open up your word and to behold your glory and to be transformed by your truth. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you might meet with us here in this time and open our eyes to behold that glory, to be transformed by the power of this word. Help me, Lord, to speak with power and authority and grace and to speak nothing but your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you're taking notes this morning, I've already told you the the three roles we're going to see, the elder's role, the church's role, and the Lord's role. So number one, let's look at the elder's role, the elder's role, and that is to shepherd and lead, to shepherd and lead. Peter begins this final section of his letter with a word to the elders. Now, just so we're on the same page, uh, these are the leaders of the church. So in the New Testament, when you read from Matthew to Revelation, you'll find a variety of words and terms used to talk about the same office of leadership in the church. Now, normally in our church, we use the word pastor, right? So I'm an associate pastor. Uh, Kevin is the college pastor. Uh, Cliff Knight is the family pastor, right? We use that word, the word pastor, but we could just as easily use the word elder, right? He's an elder over the college ministry. Uh, Jerry Ferguson is the elder over international ministry, we could really use the same word biblically, bishop. Uh, he's the bishop over these things. But unfortunately, throughout church history, the word bishop has been used to, be, to talk about a, an office that I don't think is in Scripture. And so we usually use the word elder or pastor. And these two verses actually give us insight to that interchangeability that I'm talking about, that we could use the word pastor or bishop or overseer is another way they say it, or elder. So look again at verse 1. He says, I exhort the elders among you, that's one word, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock. That's the word pastor. Shepherd the flock, that is among you. Exercising oversight. That's the word for bishop or overseer. So all three of these words and ideas are being used to talk about the same group of leaders in this letter. Peter reminds these leaders... We'll just use the word pastor or elder this morning. That he too is an elder. So Peter's calling out to the leaders of the church, thinking, hey, I'm a leader in the church too. I've witnessed the sufferings of Christ, Peter says. So he's saying, trust me when I tell you that shepherding the flock, leading the sheep, pastoring the church is worth it. At the end of all of this labor, Peter says in verse four, when the chief shepherd appears, who is Christ, the good shepherd from the book of John, when he appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So let me just, the, the quick application for, for some of us in the room, for, for the, the men in this room, because we believe at, at Lakeview that the, the office of pastor is reserved for qualified men. Let me just speak to you for just a, a hot moment. First Timothy 3 tells us that it is a noble thing to desire the office of overseer. And there may be some of you in this youth group that years from now will follow the Lord into ministry, will follow the Lord into church leadership, and hopefully, by His grace, follow the Lord into a pastorate, being the lead pastor or being an associate pastor of a local church. This is a good thing. It's a profitable thing. It's a thing with, uh, with great honor. It's a noble thing to desire, but you need to count the cost because shepherds are often dirty and messy, and covered in uh, all kinds of things that they would rather not be covered up in because they are with the sheep, and sheep are smelly, and nasty, and always covered in things they shouldn't be covered in, right? It's hard, it's difficult, it's strenuous, it's taxing in a lot of ways, but it is worth it. So how are pastors or elders supposed to shepherd the flock? Here's some some insight for you as the members of a church to hold the pastors accountable. First, they're to exercise oversight. Peter says that the leaders of the church oversee the church. They lead the church. They don't do that under compulsion as though their job as a pastor is some dreadful obligation that they have to do, like cleaning up your room or taking out the trash or pastoring a church. Like It's not in that category. No, he says that you should lead the church willingly. Next, Peter says, don't don't shepherd the flock for shameful gain. Like it's a stepping stone to platform or influence. But eagerly, Peter says, you should shepherd the church. Now, you may not know this because uh, you're way too cool for Twitter. Um, But I'm not. And uh, I can't quit it. It's so good and so bad at the same time. And something that I've seen on Twitter and on social media and you can extrapolate this in your own context, but oftentimes there are leaders in a church, there are pastors in a church who it seems, I don't know their hearts, but it seems that the reason why they are trying to uh, show the world what kind of role they have is to gain some kind of platform and influence and power. And we've seen that all throughout church history, that pastors will gain authority and gain power and gain influence and, and gain uh, um almost a level of fear from the people that they lead, and it often leads to disastrous things. So we don't pastor the church for shameful gain. We don't pastor the church so that we might get stuff from it, but willingly. Next, we don't domineer over the church, but as an example. So I pray that that my life as one of the pastors of the church and the other pastors of this this church, their lives, would be an example to you, the flock, the flock. Because as we'll see in just a little bit, we are not primarily pastors and leaders. We are primarily sheep, just like you. We have a chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus, that we all follow. And so I pray that our lives would be an example to you. Elders, therefore, must remember that we are sheep. It's easy for us to become disassociated from the people that we serve, because we're so busy. um, It's easy for us to um, get caught up in the negative things of our task and forget all of the wonderful gifts that God has given us. I mean, just, I've been given a wonderful calling in being a youth pastor. Like, I get to study the Word every week, week in and week out, for like a long time. I get to just like sit and look at this book And not just for my own sake, but knowing that I will get to share with other people what I have seen in this book and what all the counselors of commentaries and resources that I look at, I'll get to be able to to share this with you, right? It's like when you see a really good movie or a really good TV show, like we've probably watched a few of those this summer. So I know in the office, like when WandaVision was coming out, every week we were like, have you seen it? Do you know what's happened next? Do you know what decade we're in? Like every week, people on staff were talking about it because we enjoyed it and we loved getting new information and then sharing that with other people. I get to do that every week with the Bible. Now you might not think that's awesome. I think that's awesome. It's incredible. I get to learn and then I get to share with you what I've learned. I get to work alongside godly, faithful, wise men and women that I consider colleagues and dear friends. And I get to walk alongside you as we head towards heaven together. Like this is a dream. That's not to say that pastoral ministry is easy. Sometimes it's devastating. But the same spirit who reveals the love of God towards you, as you see in scripture, is the same spirit who leads and guides me to shepherd you with his love. So I hope that you will pray for me and pray for your other pastors as we lead and shepherd well by obeying his word and being an example to you. All right, so that's the little aside on elders. Now, we're gonna spend the bulk of our time on this next point. So if you're taking notes, number two, the church's role is humility and holiness. Now, that's not to say that everything that you do as a Christian can be wrapped up in these two words, but it is to say that the, the lion's share, the thrust of Peter's message at the end of his letter are these two big ideas, humility and holiness. Peter tells the younger ones in the church in verse 5, you who are younger, he says. In other words, you who are not the elders. So he's not just talking about young people, but he's talking about members of the church. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So we're all given a responsibility in this text, to follow the leadership of the elders, to follow the leaders chosen by the church. That's what our Lakeview Covenant says, that what we commit to do is to follow the leaders chosen by the church. We do this though, not by being mindless, passive, naive church members who just say, well, they said it, so that settles it. There should be a, a default level of trust that you would would give to the leaders chosen by the church. But no, how you do this is by clothing yourselves in humility toward one another. That's what Peter's saying. Be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves in humility. So how do we follow the leaders chosen by the church? How do we obey this task that God has given us? We clothe ourselves in humility towards one another. So it's not just humility as in I'm thinking about I'm thinking less about myself. Like I, I'm just thinking less and less about myself, that I'm thinking lower and lower things about myself. C.S. Lewis says, humility is not thinking, about, is not thinking less about yourself, it's thinking about yourself less. That, that what's taking up my affection and my thoughts and my vision and my dreams is not what's gonna be in it for me, but how I might be able to serve and encourage and empower other people. That's humility. Counting others as more important than yourselves. It's not saying that you're not important. But we exercise humility. We clothe ourselves in humility towards one another. So if I am self-seeking at the expense of my neighbor, much less my brother or sister in this church, my heart is not humble. It's proud. When I'm self-seeking above all things, when I'm trying to figure out how I might orient myself in this youth ministry or orient myself in this church to gain the most amount of recognition or status or love or affection or respect or whatever it is. I am not clothing myself in humility towards one another. I'm being proud. I'm, I'm, I'm believing. I may not be thinking these things, these words explicitly in my mind, but the way that I'm living my life is saying this. It is so awesome that this church has me. Like it's incredible that this church has me on its team. We're going to do amazing things. Like, that's not at all what we're called to do. That's actually the opposite of what we're called to do. All throughout the New Testament, we can read one another passages that that the writers of the New Testament give us. We're called to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to encourage one another, to build each other up, to outdo one another in showing honor and on and on we can go. The love and the humility that should mark us as believers then should lead to radically different ways in which we'll live our lives. Peter says we clothe ourselves in it. And if I see a person and I know them, and I'm not having to like study their face to know if I recognize them or not, what do I notice first? I notice what they're wearing. (laughs) Like it's the first thing my eyes go to. It's the first thing that we see when we see one another. So if Peter is saying, clothe yourselves in humility, he's saying the first thing your brothers and sisters should see in you is humility. The first thing they should see. From afar, they can recognize it. They don't have to be up close. When they see you from a distance, they can see, ah, they have humility on. It should be what people see when they see us. And what if they don't? What if we continue thinking that we're the most important thing in the universe? Like, what if you keep on down this road of of thinking that my parents are actually here to make me happy and comfortable? Like, that's ultimately how I live my life in my home. What if you keep on living your life in such a way that your friends are here to make you popular? That the people I don't feel like talking to just don't really matter. That I can shun or not interact with people even in this room. If it doesn't benefit me. At the first sign of inconvenience, we just turn the other way. What then? Well, Peter tells us. God... Opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. You want to talk about being on a good team? How about being against God? That's not where you want to be. Students, if we are going to experience the grace of the Lord among us, we have got to put our pride clicks, our status, our popularity, our self-centeredness to death. You have to kill it. You don't have to think about, well, I, assume, can, I can I retain some, some of these aspects? of it? You have to kill it. You should put it to death. Here's the principle that we're seeing right here in, verses, uh, in verse 5. If you seek to exalt yourself, God will Humble you. You can just like take that for the rest of your life. If you seek to exalt yourself, God will humble you. But look at verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. This God, under whom You live, and under his mighty hand, meaning his authority and his power and his sovereignty that he does whatever pleases him, you don't stand a chance going against him because it's under his mighty hand that you live. But if you humble yourself under that mighty hand, if you humble yourself, look at this, God will exalt you. That's what it says. Look at look again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, like if you humble yourself, so that He will at the proper time exalt you. So you really want to seek after exaltation in the kingdom of God. It's upside down. You don't find it through ambition and cutthroat strategies of, of burning bridges and and surrounding yourself with the most influential people in the world, that's not how you find exaltation in the kingdom of God. You find it through humility and service and lowliness. Because you don't exalt yourself in the kingdom. God does that. The kingdom of God is upside down. And we see this most clearly in Jesus, right? I mean, think about the life of Jesus. He was exalted. He was the son of God. He lived with Perfect, eternal bliss forever. And yet Philippians 2 tells us he humbled himself by taking the form of a servant and by becoming obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. But what was the result of Jesus's humiliation? I mean, Jesus was humiliated. It's not just that he put on flesh and dwelled among sinful people. He was ridiculed and betrayed and misunderstood and hated. And people were trying over and over to imprison him, to harm him, to kill him. And yet Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So how is it that Jesus can walk headlong into humiliation with joy? Because death is not the end for Jesus. What's the result of his humiliation? It's exaltation. Now, Jesus has the name that's above every name. Now, Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. Now, we know without a doubt that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That he's the one with the mighty hand. So how do we humble ourselves? How do we kill pride? Peter tells us here, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When you feel like someone isn't giving you the attention that you crave, often that will lead to what we could rightly call anxiety. When you feel out of place because things aren't happening the way you want them to go, that feeling of of out-of-placeness, that feeling of, of offness, often is anxiety. When you feel like you have to manipulate people to get what you want, when you find yourself anxious for the stuff going on in your life that you can't control, you can do one of two things. Well, you can do one of three things. You can either fall into despair because everything is awful and your life is hopeless and what's even the point? Now, in our sober moments, we all recognize this is not a viable option. Option two is you can lean into pride. You can say, "Well, I can just pull myself up by my bootstraps and do what I need to do to get what I need in this life, to get ahead." No matter what. No matter what it costs. Cuz it's all about me. It's all about what I need, what I want, where I'm going to be. Or, option 3, I can take all those anxieties. I can take all those feelings of being out of place. I can take all those temptations to to lean into pride and I can cast them on the Lord. I can say, God, I'm feeling these things. I don't want to feel these things. I know that you are in control. I know that I live under your strong, sovereign hand. So I'm pleading with you to meet me where I'm at, to give grace in my time of need. Peter says the way that you humble yourself is by casting your anxieties on God. And we can cast our anxieties on God because he cares for us. God is more for you than you will ever be. And don't miss that. You think in your pride, you're going to exalt yourself to a level that is unmatched by any other plans the world has to offer. But what God wants for you, as seen in his faithfulness to you, is infinitely better than you could come up with in your pride. Because your desire for exaltation in your pride is ultimately rooted in, funded by, and leading towards sin. But what God wants for you is rooted in His goodness. It's rooted in His faithfulness. It's rooted in His eternal desire to over and over and over Share His abundant love and grace. God is always more for you than you will ever be. So you can cast your cares on Him. You can cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. So what kind of life will this lead to? Keep looking at the text. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. So be sober-minded. He says, think clearly. Don't let your mind be dulled by the pleasures of this world or the technological junk food that is social media or the cutthroat mentality of those who seek to be popular in your life. Be sober-minded. Look at the world as it is and then be watchful. Be watchful. Be aware of what's going on around you because the next phrase is, because the devil... Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And he knows how to use so many things in your life to devastate you. Who knows the scriptures better than you, the devil? Who knows all of your past sins better than you? The devil, who probably knows your immediate temptations and temperaments towards sin. The devil, he has all of these weapons formed against you, that apart from the grace of God and apart from living under his mighty hand and apart from his protection that he provides, which we'll talk about in just a moment, they will prosper against you. If you try to stand up against your adversary, the devil, the roaring lion, in your pride, you will be devoured. Now here's a big, big point that I need for us to sit with for a moment. Because the ways in which the devil, our adversary, comes against us to seek to devour us is not always external. It's not always the culture wars or the the issues of our day or False religions rising in our world. Oftentimes, the things in which the devil uses to devour you, to devastate you, are in here. So here's the question. Am I, I'm not thinking about other people, am I a contributor to the anxieties of my brothers and sisters? Is the way that I live my life in this church... Is the way that I live my life in this world, does does the way that I treat the people in this room make them more anxious about their life or less? The way that I invite them and welcome them and, and show love and care and compassion to them or the way that I... Don't talk to them or don't associate with them or have no relationship with them or, or look at them with condescension or talk about them behind their back. Am I contributing to my brother and sister's anxiety or am I a source of relief for them? If you're a contributor to your brother's and sister's anxiety, you need to repent and you need to go to your brother or sister. I mean, Jesus tells us, if your brother has sinned against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. But that verse is not, it's not a license, it's not a get out of jail free card if you've sinned against somebody. Don't think if you've sinned against somebody, you're like, well, they seem to be fine, so I'm not going to bring it up. Because Matthew, Matthew 18, they're supposed to come to me. Well, Jesus also says, if you go to offer something on the altar and realize that you've done something against your brother, go fix it. Go be reconciled to your brother before you make that offering. You have a responsibility to go to your brother and sister if you've been sinned against, and you have a responsibility towards your brother and sister if you've sinned against them. Am I clothed in humility before my faith family, or am I walking in pride? I can't answer that question for you. Not with with absolute certainty. I mean, we see interactions and we see evidence of what kind of spiritual clothing you have on. But no one knows your heart better than you. But I can tell you this. Humility is never not worth it. Humility is never not worth it. In the end, it's the humble ones, the ones who are clothed in humility, that will receive God's grace. And you and I and everyone in the world are in desperate need of that. So I'm pleading with you as your shepherd to walk humbly. To clothe yourselves in humility. To see those around you as brothers and sisters made in God's image. Given by God. Don't miss this. Given by God as a gift to you. Everyone in this room. Everybody in this church. It's not an accident that these people make up Lakeview Baptist Church. It's not not an accident that these are the members that make up the body. It is God's gift to the body. So these brothers and sisters around you are God's gift given to you, and you are God's gift to them. Perhaps they need something that you have. They need a kind of encouragement, or they need some counsel by walking through something that you've already experienced, or they need just somebody to pray for them, or they just need to make a friend. They need somebody in the world to come alongside them, and God has seen fit to organize these local churches, these bodies of believers to do just that. It's not an accident. We're living under His mighty hand. So let the Spirit be the bond that unites you. Don't let pettiness or popularity or hurt feelings or social skills or differences in status be the reason that you forfeit God's gift to you and steal his gift from other people. Peter calls us then to resist the devil. Be sober-minded, be watchful, clothe yourselves in humility, resist him, resist the devil, firm in your faith. How do we stand firm in our faith and endure the suffering that awaits us from our wicked enemy? Because I will, I don't know the future. If I were a betting man, though, I would promise you this. If you believe this and start to live like this, you can bet that spiritual warfare will come. If you are actually honest about living your life clothed in humility and loving your neighbor as yourself and especially showing love to the brotherhood, you can, you can bank on this enemy coming to find you. So don't think it's strange, Peter says, when you endure various fiery trials not strange at all. The devil is not threatened by Christians whom God opposes, but he is threatened by those who receive his grace because they walk in humility. So how do we resist him? Well, all throughout the scriptures, we've been given a variety of really practical things that you and I can do and, and practical things that you and I can remember in the midst of suffering, temptation, warfare, we fight in this battle against our adversary, the devil, by wearing armor, right? You and I have been given the armor of God himself to stand against the fiery darts of the evil one, Paul says. So to think, it's not just God, God's armor that you pick up and put down. It's the Lord's armor, right? The breastplate of righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's Jesus's righteousness. The belt of truth is not your truth. It's God who is the truth, right? The helmet of salvation, not your salvation. You didn't earn that. That's what Jesus earned for you. Shield of faith, sword of the spirit, all of these things God has given us. We've been given the gift of prayer. You can petition the Lord for help anytime and you can trust because he cares for you that he is always there to listen and he is always there to supply your needs. It may not be what you think you need. But remember, God is more for you than you are. And he knows what you need. We've been given the gift of worship. We can praise the Lord even in the darkness of our sufferings because we know, we know that the night always leads to the morning. And we know the light of the world will overcome the darkness once and for all. So we can sing, we can praise, we can worship by ourselves, and our hearts, with our mouths, corporately. We worship in the midst of great sorrow, great suffering, because we know that we can stand firm. We've been given the scriptures to read and to memorize and to meditate on, to remind us of all of God's faithfulness, his promises, his attributes, and more. When we think about and devote our minds to meditating on that which is good and noble and pure and holy. These are ways in which God will bless us. We want to give ourselves over to thinking about these things. And we've been given the gift of the church who comes alongside us to encourage and to counsel and even rebuke us away from danger and back towards safety. To prepare to be loved on, prepare to be encouraged, to prepare to be rebuked. I mean, I think about my own, my own life. Like, I have a nine and a half month old. And, and, and a lot of us think that rebuking is something we don't want. Like, we don't want to be rebuked. I don't want to get in trouble. And, and surely, in some sense, that's right. But rebuking is actually a really, a really great gift, Right? Like my son the other day um, was, was trying to stand on a door and the door was open. And so if he would just push it, it's gonna, he's going to fall and it's in our bathroom. And so if he falls, he's going to fall right on the edge of the bathtub. I don't know about you, I don't want to figure out how strong a nine and a half month old skull is next to bathtub. So I yank him up. Right? I say, no, 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 and I yank him up as the door is like moving forward. Not that I don't love him, that I'm keeping him from what he wants to do. It's precisely because I love him that I'm keeping him from what he wants to do. And in the same way, when brothers and sisters who love Jesus and love you come to you with encouragement but also with rebukes, our default stance can't be, well, they must really just not like me because they just want to get on to me all the time it may be that they actually just really care about you and love you and want what's best for you. We're not going to get that right 100% of the time. But we'll miss all the shots we don't take. And if we never do that with each other, then we'll never receive those blessings together. No. That's a lot. That's a lot. But before you unintentionally feel the weight of the world on your shoulders... Let's cast those anxieties on the Lord together and see what his role is in all this. So third and final point, the Lord's role, preservation and glory. Preservation and glory. After our time in this exile is over, and we've suffered a little while, Peter says, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will bring you all the way home. You're going to suffer for a little while, Peter says but that that God who called you into the eternal glory of Christ, he will do it. He has chosen you like God chose you, Christian, like that alone like let's just pray and be done. that's astounding he he set his affection on you and until the end he will himself restore you when you are broken down he will confirm you when you seem totally lost he will strengthen you in the depths of your weakness and he'll establish you when your feet are slipping don't miss this students god does the work god does the work this is our living hope this is the good news of the gospel That our life in clothing ourselves in humility is not to earn. It's not to achieve. It's to respond to what God has done. Our whole lives, our role in this life can be summed up in this response by Peter in verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This isn't some trite little, this is how I'm going to end the phrase with a little doxology. This is Peter saying, the right response to everything that we've seen and heard is worship. The right response to all the sufferings in this world is worship. The right response to submitting to my leaders and authorities is worship. The right response to enduring fiery trials is worship. The right response to to walking in humility even when it's hard is worship. All of these things are summed up in God has dominion, God is worthy, and we praise his name. So don't ever for a moment Be content with believing that God will not take care of you. You may walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You may be ostracized and looked over. You may suffer for the name of Christ, but he is always there. And he is always within you, and he is always watching over you, and he is always closer than a brother to you. So, as we conclude, listen to Peter's final words, written by Sylvanus' hand. Often in the first century, writers of the letters would be speaking the letter, and a scribe would be writing it. So, we have every reason to believe that Peter spoke out this letter, Sylvanus wrote it down, and sent it on to the exiles. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God all that I've said to you in these last five chapters, all that I've said to you in this brief letter, this is the grace of God. It is God's grace that all of these things are true. So stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. Don't get too hung up on that. Babylon often is a reference to Rome in the first century for Christians. And so we have reason to believe, scholars believe, that Peter is in Rome as he's writing this letter. And she, who is likewise chosen, is the church in Rome. So the church in Rome, through the words of Peter, sending their greetings and this extension and exhortation and proclamation of the grace of God and the gospel to those who need to hear it. So does Mark, most likely John Mark, one who wrote the gospel, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ as we need each other. To be clothed in humility, to walk before God humbly and with holiness, to live our lives not in pride and idolatry, but in the life that the Spirit of God empowers us to live. My deepest hope and prayer is that all of us would say with confident faith that we have this peace because we are in Christ. Like no Christ, no peace. But if you're in Christ, Peter says, peace to you. My hope is that all of us could say that with confidence. But if not, if you don't know what it's like to live in God's rich grace, as we wrap up this series and look ahead to the school year, I'm, I'm begging you, don't let your leader ask a question or sit and endure small talk until you've humbled yourself and turned to the Lord. If you're unsure about what all that entails, pull your leader aside. More important than following up. Pull me aside, pull Rachel aside, more important. Don't wait. If you don't know what life in Christ is like, if you don't know what it means to surrender your life, to believe the gospel that Jesus really does save sinners, if you want the peace that is promised to you, then discussion questions are a secondary matter. Let me pray for you. God in heaven, we are grateful for your grace. And Lord, I pray that, that I might be changed by your word, that you might, by your grace, clothe me in humility. Empower me to clothe myself in it. And I don't want to be opposed by you. I need your grace. And Lord, I know that's true of all of us in this room. So let it start with me as a, as a leader, as an elder. Help me to be the example for the flock. That I would consider more others more important than myself. That I would die to myself for the sake of others, just as Jesus did. And Lord, I pray that we would even... We can't even imagine, but God, help us. Help us to just think for a moment what it would be like if we lived like that. What it would be like if we died to ourselves and put our pride to death and humbled ourselves before one another. We walked in holiness together. Lord, that would be a, a, a blessing that we can't wrap our minds around. But we know that it requires the work of your spirit. So we pray and plead and ask that you might work among us even now. Root out sins in our hearts. Destroy and do away with bitterness and grudges and unforgiveness. Open our eyes to see that those in this room are our brother and our sister, ones that we love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.